0: Hello and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland and I'm so excited to be here with you. When I say the word binding, what feelings come to mind? For me, binding is one of my favorite steps of the process. It means I'm almost finished with a quilt and I get the chance to cozy up under it while watching a favorite movie and hand stitching the binding in place, which I find very relaxing. But for some quilters, binding is a dreaded last step of the process and can cause some anxiety for finishing a quilt. No matter where on the spectrum you fall, I have some helpful tips to share today to make a binding easier and quicker. Now there's no way I can actually explain how to do binding uh, through a podcast, Uh, so if you need details on how to bind either by hand or machine, I'll link to some resources in the show notes to get you caught up. First, let's talk about preparing your binding strips. It's a helpful idea to prep your binding at the same time that you're piecing the quilt top. And this helps you avoid accidentally using the fabric you had planned for the binding on another project. And it also means that as soon as you're done quilting, you don't need to spend any extra time prepping the binding before you can finish. It's ready for you, ready to go. Um, And I think it's a fun idea to store your binding around a paper towel or maybe a toilet paper roll. And that just helps keep it wrinkle free And I even think it's helpful to write the name of the project or the quilt right on that paper towel roll. Uh, In case you're working at multiple projects at once, um, or you have multiple bindings prepared, you know exactly what quilt it was meant for. If you're making a double fold binding, which is pretty popular, you'll have to fold and press that binding strip in half Uh, And it can be a bit of a pain to press the strip in half, especially if you have a really long binding strip. And sometimes your fingers can get pretty close to that iron when you're kind of trying to maneuver the strip with one hand and hold the iron with the other. There are actually some tools out there, though, that can help. So our staff has a few recommendations. One is the Binding Ease by Quilting Hearts. Another is the June Taylor Quilt Binding Express. And the last one is the Third Hand Binding Folder from Purple Hobbies. And these tools both do the work of folding the binding as you kind of pull your strip through the tool. And it provides a place to press it with your iron. Um, So each of these tools is slightly different. um, So we'll link to them in the show notes and you can check them out more. And maybe one of them fits your needs are exactly what you're looking for, but if you're finding that that ironing step is kind of tedious, um, these tools might just help with that. Now, if you have trouble deciding on which fabric will look best on binding, here's a trick to try. So to get an idea of how your binding fabric will look, once it's cut and sewn to a quilt, you can cut a half an inch wide slit in like a square of cardstock or paper to make a viewing window. And that half inch wide um, is the, the width of the binding that you'll see on the front of your quilt. So you can then hold that little viewing window over different fabrics and look through it to see what the design will look like. So for binding like small print designs, solids, um, maybe like an all over print, like a stripe, do work best and a lot of people choose those type of things. Large scale or directional prints uh, can sometimes look strange once they're sewn to a quilt or once they're cut skinnier, Um, but sometimes depending on the larger scale print or the colors of your quilt, um, using something like that can look really cool and give a really interesting effect, but this viewing window can kind of help you see that finished look so you can choose the best fabric option. And you can even skip the step of prepping your binding completely and just buy prepared binding. So we love getting ours um, from Kelly Marshall of Simply Macbeth. She's actually a frequent designer in our magazines, um, but she also sells these prepared binding in a variety of colors and prints. The binding is sized to fit a large throw so it will work for most quilts and you may have some left over to use for something else and she sells kind of a mix of more classic designs like solids and stripes um, but also some binding in more popular and current fabrics like for instance like a bonnie and camille design Um, so you may be able to find a new fabric binding to match your quilt for a more specific look She does rotate out her fabric choices pretty often so um you'll want to be on the lookout for that but we'll link to her store in the show notes in case this seems like a good solution for you now let's move on to the sewing step of binding once your binding is prepared it's a good idea to lay your quilt out flat and then roughly lay your prepared binding strip around the quilt so you can make sure that your strip is long enough and also that the seams of the binding aren't hitting in the corners of the quilt. It's not the end of the world if the seam falls in a corner, but it does add a lot of extra bulk to those mitered corners when you're binding, and it can make them look less neat and less pointy than your other corners. So if you have the option to just adjust things slightly to avoid that, it's worth it. And depending on the method of binding you're doing you may have a little extra bulk where you start and end your binding strip so not all methods of binding have that bulk um, but some of them do where the beginning and ending of the strips slightly overlap so you have a little more fabric where they come together so if you do use one of these methods you may want to consider starting to sew your binding on where the bulk will be less obvious um, so, for example, I always like to start my binding in a bottom corner of my quilt because I just, that's not where your eye is usually drawn when you're looking at a quilt. Um, so, I think it's a little less obvious. You can also choose to start um, where the binding colors match with the quilt top to blend a little better. Not all quilts are designed that way, and you might not even be using a binding color that matches colors in the quilts, but sometimes starting that binding where the colors might meet up can help. One of my favorite tips I have ever heard for binding, um, and still have yet to try, came from teacher Susan Cleveland, and she told us in an interview we did with her on a previous podcast that she doesn't square up her quilt or trim her batting and backing, backing even with the quilt top until after she's sewn the binding on because it keeps the seams from popping, it keeps threads from unraveling, and it provides a little extra stability when sewing the binding on. Um, Susan explains it in much more detail than I do so um if you want to hear her listen in to episode 479 of this podcast and she has a lot of other tips and tricks too it's a great interview but this one especially stood out to me and it's one I want to try soon and now a few more tips for finishing your binding if you're binding the uh binding to the back of your quilts by hand try using hand quilting thread which is a coated thread so because it has this coating on it it doesn't tangle as easily so um you can usually cut a pretty long length of hand quilting thread like maybe about three feet when binding and this just means you're spending less time tying knots and bearing threads um, less time untangling threads and i just find that the coating on the hand quilting thread glides through the fabric so easily um, to make binding easier and it's also thicker than normal piecing thread so you can tug on it pull on it and it does not break it doesn't snap and it holds up to washing really well. It's my favorite tip to share with quilters and once I started using hand quilting thread to bind my quilts I couldn't go back. I cannot imagine doing it any other way. In fact, I struggle when I try to use normal thread now. (laughs) If you bind your quilts um, by machine, completely by machine, you might want to consider holding the binding in place, um, you know, when you fold it over to stitch that second stitching line to hold it in place, um, either with wonder clips or you can even use dots of a fabric glue or just a washable glue like Elmer's and this just frees up your hands for sewing so you can have all of your hands attention on pushing the quilt through the machine and it just makes sure your binding stays exactly where it needs to be to get that nice straight stitch that nice finished look um, and then the glue washes out in the wash so it's um, a pretty clever trick. So there you have it, some of our best tips for making binding easier and quicker. Of course, we'd love to hear any genius tricks you have for binding. Um, We think it would be fun to compile more of these um, and share it on the podcast at a later date. Um, We know binding is something people struggle with, and we know there's a lot more great tips out there for making it easier. So you can email us. Um, any tips you have at apqpodcast at meredith.com um, we'll list the email in our show notes so if you have something to share you can reach out to us there. We're going to take a quick ad break but when we come back we're chatting with designer Mary Blythe. Welcome back. I'm now handing the mic over to Elizabeth Stumbo, the art director of American Patchwork and Quilting, for her chat with Mary Blythe. So we just featured Mary in the October 2021 issue of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine. So if you have that issue or you're a subscriber, you've been lucky enough to see the photos of her beautiful space and projects. But for those who don't know Mary, She is a talented hand crafter, best known for her wool applique designs and rug hooking. She's the former owner of the Woolen Needle Store in Williamsburg, Iowa, and she's also a teacher, author, and lover of antiques and history. She has so much to share for us today, so please enjoy the chat.
1: Hi, Mary. Welcome to the podcast. I am just so thankful that you you are joining us today um, to talk about all things quilting and wool. Yes, thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. So uh, we had the pleasure of featuring you and your designs in our current October 2021 issue of American Patrick and Quilting Magazine, and I am just so thrilled to introduce you now to our podcast listeners.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I uh, was honored uh, to be asked by Jody uh, a year ago to uh, have a pattern featured in last year's magazine and then uh, did the Instagram uh, takeover. And from there, it led to uh, the feature that is in uh, this uh, current issue. Yeah, it's on newsstands right now so people can pick it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: it's such a beautiful feature. I had so much fun um, designing that and the photos were just beautiful of your space. So we were so honored to to be able to feature you too and, and uh, have you be a longtime contributor to our magazines. That's been really great too. So
2: thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah.
1: So um, I would say that you are best known for your beautiful wool patterns, but really you embrace a variety of what you describe as heirloom crafts. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about that term heirloom crafts and a little bit about yourself and how that passion for those crafts and and textiles and quilting really began. Uh,
2: To me, heirloom crafts are crafts that uh, our mothers, grandmothers and great grandmothers uh, did uh, to pass the time and also to to make products for their home. Um, I love rug hooking, I have always loved the look of it, Uh, stumbled upon a class in the early 90s in Kansas City and learned a lot about wool there from Emily Leas and just fell in love with wool in general. Um, From there, I just continued to rug hook. Uh, I was a stay-at-home mom, so that was my hobby. And my hobby soon turned into a desire to open a shop. Um, I knew in Williamsburg that a wool shop was probably not going to stand on its own. So I brought along a couple friends and it was a wool and quilt shop uh, called the Wool and Needle. And there I dyed the wool for the shop and out of necessity just started designing uh, wool applique at that point and really had not done a lot of wool applique, but soon fell in love with it. And again, designed our own and started incorporating uh, the wool in not only into wool applique or rug hooking, but also started uh, using it on quilts instead of uh, doing a needle turn uh, cotton applique because I and was not a quilter, and still am not, but do appreciate uh, quilts, and especially the reproduction uh, quilts that you see. So that's, um, I guess, my definition of heirloom crafts, Mm -hmm. um, those that have been passed down as well. Um, Yeah, just making beautiful things for your home,
1: almost out of necessity, but now it's just become such a beautiful passion, and crafts in their own right. Um, Yes. So just beautiful. Well, being a fellow Iowan, I have had the pleasure of visiting the wool and needle numerous times over the years. And I just have to tell you that you created such a beautiful shop. Um, Just that what you started there um, and the patterns you continue to design
2: are just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Selling it in 2011 um, was difficult, but I felt I was leaving it in good hands uh, with the friends that I had in there. And I just, I, I was starting to miss things at home. And uh, so sold it in 2011 and uh, just started actually designing at home. Then after that,
1: mm-hmm. do you still um, dye your own wools for yourself, um, for your for your own use, or do you have a large enough stash now that you're kind of set for a
2: while? <laughs> well, as you can see, the pictures there, uh, I do have a very good stash. But the problem with rogue hooking, with wool applique, and if you're working on a new design, you have um, colors and textures in your mind uh, when you go about designing a piece. And amazingly enough, you can have all the wo- wool in the world, and that that piece that you need is just isn't there. So I have started dyeing again here in my home. I'm lucky enough to have an area uh, away from my kitchen with a cooktop and, and uh, able to do it here at home because um, not only do I need certain colors that I may not already have in my stash, but uh, I have also begun teaching again and needed to do uh, a bit of kidding uh, for that and didn't quite have enough. So I really do enjoy the dye process and I'm glad to be back at it.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting process to learn. Would you, were you self-taught or did you take some classes or apprentice with other people? Or is it just kind of um, experimentation over the years to know what works?
2: I actually um, just kind of was self-taught uh, talked to a few teachers, uh, kind of saw their setup at a few retreats that I had been at. And, um, uh, my first, uh, dye formula book was Emily Lais's and, and Barbara Carroll's, uh, they're very well known. Emily sadly has passed, but Barbara, they together came up with a wonderful dye book of primitive colors. And I worked off of that for quite a while. And then, um, kind of changed my my dye uh, company that I was getting my dyes from and then in turn came up with my own formulas from mm-hmm. there. But uh, I was basically just self-taught because um, back when I started, it there wasn't a lot of uh, teaching going on as far as how to dye.
1: Yeah. Um, do you still find yourself surprised by certain things you die or... Or do you oh, yes. have it all down as a formula? Okay.
2: <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. And what's, what's really sad is I did save my formulas from when I was at the shop. And then of course, over the last 10, 12 years, the names of the dyes have changed and they've discontinued certain things. So mm-hmm. I am having fun playing around with it. Um, but yeah, uh, I do have a lot of different reds because I wasn't quite finding the right red. So I think I have every shade of red that I will need for quite a while.
1: (laughs) Red is a tricky color to get right. And I I think a lot of people uh, call like that true red or cardinal red, like that can mean different things to different people. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I totally understand that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's fun that after all of these years, you still have surprises and are continuing to, to learn and
2: as you go. So that's always exciting. And and on the dye side, um, actually don't be afraid of ever picking up an ugly piece of wool. Um, That is, uh, wool is great because you can change whatever color. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you like the the plaid that's going on in it or the check or the texture or anything um, of that sort, don't be afraid of picking up that ugly piece of wool. You can always change the color of it. Yeah, that's
1: nice. It's a lot of freedom there. Yes, yes. I'm curious, where, where do you find those raw pieces of wool? Um, I know, you know, if someone's doing it on a smaller scale, they might go to like a secondhand shop or something and pick up an, an old piece of clothing or whatever. But I'm wondering where you find those raw materials. Uh,
2: I used to do it that way. Um, but, you know, because of the quantity that we use, I have um, several suppliers or three suppliers that I basically use um, that come out quarterly with, uh, swatches and they just end up, you know, coming up with these beautiful wools. The, the sad thing is, is that there's not many wool mills out there anymore. So the selection can be limited. Uh, but you know, they, they do a beautiful job of doing that, but sadly enough, COVID has affected their operation too, as well. And so, Um, you know, they're, they're backed up as far as uh, what they're able to get as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I do buy from um, the wool studio out in Pennsylvania, heavens to Betsy and the doormill company. Um, They're all great long, long standing companies and, and uh, they, they do a very good job of coming up seasonally with, with new, new pieces.
1: Yeah. I just find the whole process fascinating that you can take some someone else's like beginning raw product and then just completely make it your own and Mm -hmm. reinvent it in a way. So Mm -hmm. uh, I love talking Mm -hmm. about hand dyeing things. That's great. Yes. Yeah. Um, So your style when you're designing patterns and coming up with new designs, do you find yourself kind of drawn to the same familiar uh, color palettes or techniques and motifs? Um, How would you describe your style? Is it kind of? Folk art style for those that might not be familiar with your with your patterns. Right, right.
2: I would say my style is a refined primitive. I uh, love primitive uh, antiques. I early American antiques, and I wouldn't say my pieces are primitive. Primitive uh, to me, that um, is a little rougher than what I do. Uh, I love the primitive color palette, the darker muted uh, colors. And um, my elements are detailed, but yet they're not finely detailed. Um, I tend to, if I have to have a detailed aspect of my design, I generally use it um, or have that come across in stitches rather than in the wool, just because teeny tiny little pieces are really hard sometimes to fuse and tuck under Mm -hmm. other pieces to make that concept work or to have your element look like what you want it to look like. So I tend to not make my designs too complicated. Um, And I also, because well, applique started with the penny rug and people used coins, you know, to make their circles. I tend to, most of my designs have some sort of circle penny in them. Very few do not. Um, I don't know. I've just always been drawn to that uh, look and, but uh, thank God for AccuCut and PreCut <laughs> circles because Um, as you know, no one can draw or they can draw maybe a perfect circle with a stencil, but you cannot cut a perfect circle. And, and there are times when I don't use my pre-cut circles, but, um, a lot of times I do just to save time and, and frustration, but yeah, I would, I would call my style more of a refined primitive, um, uh, Definitely not. I don't design on the bright end of things. Um, if I do a spring uh, design at all, the colors would be more on the muted, uh, softer tone um, than anything bright. Yeah. Uh, that's so great. Um, so I was also just curious
1: what what first drew you to wool? You said you started with rug hooking, but then you started to discover that you could also kind of, you know, do applique with it. For any of our listeners that might not have dabbled in wool before, what are are some of those things that you love about working
2: with wool? I love the portability of it. Um, We travel a lot and just being able to put uh, your pieces together because I do use the heat and bond method of fusing Uh, my wool to my uh, finished foundation Um, and also I take uh, circle pennies on the go um, with me everywhere so the portability is huge Um, and just the fact that you don't need a lot of supplies to work with it you basically a scissors needles thread and um you know, your wool and whatever design you, you choose to use. Um, I, I love rug hooking because of the look of it and just the designs are amazing and you can just do do so many fun things with it. But, It's really one of those crafts that, you know, you need a frame, you need a hook, you Mm -hmm. need your, your foundation piece and all that. And it can be a little clunky to travel with and with wool. I mean, I throw it in a bag, throw it in my purse and, you know, you can do it in the car. Um, at ball games for those people <laughs> that are sitting at ball games and athletic events, and yeah, those can and, be long hours uh, sitting on features. yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And you can get a lot done in the, that amount of time. So 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 basically the portability of it, and I just love the look of it. And, mm-hmm. and um, most people, and if you rug hooking, um, I to me takes more time. And if you're wanting to do a gift for somebody, um, wool applique is a lot simpler it fits into most homes and it's a lot less expensive than you know doing an entire rug for somebody as a gift Mm -hmm. yeah I have dabbled a little bit with wool applique and I love like you said like the port portability of it
1: and that it's just like a a simpler introduction to applique than you know Mm -hmm. traditional applique needle turn and everything um but I also love, especially what I get when I look at your patterns, are this beautiful dimensions and all of the textures you get with wool,
2: too. I just think that mm-hmm. you
1: can't achieve that with other things um, a lot of the time. So,
2: right, right. And I, um, in my rug cooking class, my initial one I took from Emma Lou, she did not use a flat piece of wool um, in any of her rugs. She used, what I call as-is pieces, uh, pieces that actually hadn't even been dyed yet, plaids, uh, tonal textures, you know, tone-on-tone tone pieces, uh, tweeds, herringbones, houndstooth, and it just adds a different dimension um, to your pieces. And so then I carry that on in a wool applique. And it just, a lot of times the plaids and stripes or whatever you have going on can do a lot of the Um, explaining of what you want your element to be without having to do a lot of extra stitching. And plus it just, it just adds interest. Um, You do have to be careful. Um, I'm currently uh, color planning um, some Christmas stockings and as much as I love texture, you still have to have those somewhat quiet pieces too within your design so you don't uh, have too much going on um, you know, within your, within your project, but they do add a fun and they're it's plaids are an awesome way to uh, help bring your project together because it can, it can bring in all the, you know, several of your colors that you have in your piece and just kind of, um, you know, put the finishing touch on it.
0: Hey, it's Lindsay. Sorry to interrupt, but we have to take a quick ad break. We'll be back soon with more from Mary.
1: So, well, in the magazine feature, we have featured some beautiful photos of your home sewing space, and it just looks like an incredible space to just uh, pursue all of your hobbies in. Thank you. Thank you. I
2: love it. I love it. Do you
1: spend a lot of hours down there? Yes, I do. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it looks like an incredible space. For our listeners, could you describe your space a little bit for them?
2: Well, I would say it is just warm and cozy and old um i just have always loved history i love reading historical fiction and and just kind of um you know trying to experience what it must have been like back back in the day and uh so i love filling my spaces with antiques and um actually pieces from the past Uh, I've been fortunate enough to have a couple quilts uh from my great-grandmother's a sampler and and some other pieces so I love incorporating those uh, pieces into my decor and um just I love using them to store things um I have in the magazine there's pictures of my spool cabinets uh fortunately uh I was able to have my hardware store just make me some simple little grid pieces. And so I used that for all my pennies because in the beginning, I, you know, it wasn't a problem, but as uh, I continued to design and cut and, and all that. They were getting out of control, and trying to find what I needed was impossible. So that has really helped uh, keep myself on track. And then I also use it for my Valdani that I use. So I'm not uh, struggling in bags and trying to mm-hmm. dig around and find find what I need. But um, and just and having the wool on display on the shelves, um, just it's inspirational to me. I just love, love the look of it for one. And just, it uh, just gets me excited to see, oh, okay, what can I, what can I plan with this or, or, uh, you know, where can I use this piece in a next, a next project that I'm doing, Mm -hmm. but um, just having it available um, and just being able to see it all the time, just kind of inspires you to, to do something new. Yeah, I love that you have used some of those antique pieces in
1: in a new way that works for you. So they're not just for display, they're also functional. Right. And I find that's really fascinating. So
2: yes, yeah. I, I do that a lot. And I and I love using old enamel pans and trays for just keeping things um, separate projects and you know, pattern pieces and things like that that I may be working on, and then I get I get sidetracked a little bit and say, "Oh, well, this this would look good in this project?" So then I'm able to to throw those pieces on a different tray and and just kind of keep try to keep things straight. Um, my studio right now I wouldn't want you to see it because, <laughs> like I said, I'm in the middle of um, color planning six different uh, Christmas stockings and it's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's the most beautiful disaster
1: though, with all of those colors.
0: <laughs> love I try.
1: <laughs> I try. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you surround yourself with some beautiful heirloom pieces while you are creating heirloom pieces that you're going to hand down and
2: inspire other people's with. So it's well, really I, a beautiful I, space. I sure, sure hope, uh, people feel that way about, uh, my pieces and, and, uh, try real hard to to think of how they may be used uh with the uh the next generation using them Mm -hmm. yeah
1: and things that you can just bring out all the time because so many of your pieces too are are seasonal inspiration too Mm -hmm. so um yeah it's fun to pull those out and and bring them out every year and and remember making them or having been gifted them from someone else so
2: yeah yes yes
1: Well, um, we're kind of wrapping up our time here, but I always like to end with a few what we call our rapid fire questions here at the end of the interview. So um, I have five questions for you. So you can just say whatever first comes to mind. Okay. Okay. First season. uh, First question is, what is your favorite season to design for?
2: Fall. Love the colors, love (laughs) love the season, love all the textures and yeah, just love it. Yeah. It's such a great
1: season, especially for wool. It's just like, you just want to be warm and cozy. Yes. Yes. Great. Um, What is a technique you want to learn or maybe pick back up again?
2: I really want to spend more time rug hooking. I, I do miss it. Um, I just, I just want to dedicate more time to that. And I have so many projects that are partially done. And, and as you know, many of us have those, but I would really like to get back uh, to doing a little bit more of that.
1: Mm-hmm. What, so you kind of touched on this a little bit already, but uh, what is the current project you are working on right now?
2: Well, bless her heart. One of my daughter-in-laws, um, she, uh, asked if I would do some stockings for her children. So then it blossomed into, um, asking my other four sons and their families, which, um, include right now, nine grandchildren. So, um, I have designed six, uh, stockings and again i'm just down to color planning and putting together the last of the six designs and then i will start uh, manufacturing uh in bulk uh all of the stockings and then get them out hopefully um early to mid next year okay Great. Yeah.
1: Countdown to Christmas is on. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got to
2: get those stockings ready. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: And I love that you're making it fair and making them for all the grandkids. You got to be yes. equal.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No. Um, there, well, go ahead. There's been a disclaimer put out that uh, they may not all get done by this Christmas. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. That's totally understandable. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you need that disclaimer on any handmade gift, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Maybe you can just end up showing a picture of what it will look like.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: Someday. Someday. Someday they'll have it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, okay. My next question is, what do you love about quilting and wool community?
2: Um, I guess, and I experienced this a couple weeks ago, I was able to teach out at the Wild and Wooly Escape in Shipshawana, Indiana, and it was the first time I had taught in a long time. And I guess it's just the willingness of everybody to help each other out, to encourage each other. Um, It was just a really nice group of ladies. There was beginners to more advanced, um, even quilt shop owners that took some of my classes and I just, I didn't feel that anybody was made to feel bad for what they didn't know. Uh, students were, you know, just interacting very nicely, you know, just sharing their knowledge uh, in between the time that I was, you know, sharing with them. And that, I, I really love that. It's not, it's not all about the teacher. It's about, um, you know, just people helping each other out, uh, mm-hmm to further their hobby and the craft and, and to keep the interest alive. Yeah.
1: Love that. All right. So we've talked a lot about heirloom things today. I'm curious if you have someone in your life that you are currently passing on your love for wool. to. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Well, I, I talked in the feature too. Um, my granddaughter Larson has been stitching with me since she was about three and a half, four years old, and she will turn seven next week. So she has really taking, um, you know, wool and done her own thing with it. She has been able to, you know, graduate from a tapestry needle now to a needlepoint needle. She's designed some of her own pieces. And I, and I hope. Her little sister, and she's got two little girl cousins right now um, that you know will hopefully be just as interested. And the boy, you know, the boys are as well, um, more so with the tools and wielding them as weapons. But <laughs> um, no, so uh, but um, I just I just want them to uh, enjoy being creative, and wool lends itself to that. And uh, she gets pretty excited, and so I get excited as well.
1: Yeah, that's great. I love that you're passing that on. Mm It'd be fun to see what she comes up with over the years. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, Mary, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. I've loved our conversation together and I can't wait to just pull out my next wool project and get started. It's the perfect time of year.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me and good luck with whatever you decide to pull out. Um, I'm sure it'll be amazing. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Hey, it's Lindsay. Thanks to Mary and Elizabeth for that wonderful chat. I just love hearing how Mary translates her love of antiques and her just creative spirit into such beautiful designs. She really breathes life into her creations through texture, color, and stitching, and it's so inspiring. We'll link to Mary's website and social media sites in our show notes so that you can connect with her more. And if you've been wanting to try working with wool, um, Mary's book, her patterns, um, and even some kits for her projects are available at quite a few stores, which you can find at her website. Before we leave today, I wanted to share a review of the podcast. So this review comes from Quirk Quilter, and they say, I found this podcast in March of 2020 ever since I look forward to new episodes on Mondays. I also go back to the plenty of older episodes and keep getting great tips each time I listen. Hearing the host's friendly voices has been great for my stress and encourages me to keep up with my quilt projects. I'm so thrilled that Quirk Quilter found us. I think the start of the pandemic brought a lot more quilters into the world of podcasts to just stay connected and We're so glad to have you as one of our listeners. So thanks so much for this kind review. If this review is yours, please email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com. The email is listed in our show notes. Uh, We'd love to send you a little gift to say thank you. And as always, we'd love for our listeners to rate and or review the show. Um, It truly helps other quilters find us. And it means the world to our staff to know other quilters are enjoying the show. Everyone have a great week.